When I hear about deception, what comes to mind is the famous story of Odysseus and the Trojan horse found in Homer's book, The Iliad. According to Homer, the author, the Greeks besieged the city of Troy for 10 years without success, as many of you know the story. When their champion warrior Achilles was killed, many of the Greeks wanted to give up the fight. But the king of uh, Ithaca, Odysseus, came up with a plan to get the Greek army into the city of Troy. Odysseus built an immense wooden horse, and he and his warriors hid inside of it. And after leaving the horse at the gates of Troy, the Greek army sailed away. The Trojans, thinking the Greeks had given up and left the horse as a gift, brought the wooden horse inside its city gate. That night, while the Trojans were sleeping, the Greek ships quietly returned. The soldiers in the horse slipped out and opened the city gates. The Greek army entered quietly and started fires all over the city of Troy. The Trojans awoke to find their city in flames. As they tried to flee, they were killed by the waiting Greeks. This is a beloved story. Whether historically accurate or not, we're not sure. But this is one of those great stories of intrigue and deception that befits something like the great Trojan War between the Greeks and the people of Troy. But sadly, this same type of grand deception and intrigue is often played out in a smaller scale in families and amongst friends, which often causes messiness in life and much family dysfunction. Of course, Satan loves it when we employ deception and intrigue because he knows of the consequences it brings to friendships and to family. It destroys. We continue this morning our sermon series entitled Home, and we look specifically at the subject of deception to draw out some biblical principles for how we are to avoid it and to understand what it does as we look at the life of Jacob. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 27. We begin in verse 1. Genesis, chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. Now, as you're turning to it, remember that two weeks ago, we began our series, and if you had missed it, uh, I hope that you'll go to our website and listen to this foundational sermon so that you'll understand where this sermon series is headed. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Rebecca had been given a prophecy by God that the older of the two twins would serve the younger. And then we talked about the selling of Esau's inheritance birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. And then in chapter 26, verses 34 to 35, we find out that Esau's marriages caused his parents great heartache. And this, this brings us up to what's going to happen now in verse 1 of chapter 27. Look with me as I read. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me. 
and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Pretty self-explanatory. Isaac wants to bless Esau before he dies. And that he asks him to go hunting and hunt for his favorite food and prepare it. And then he would give him a blessing. Now why is this so important? Because in the ancient Near East, one's oral blessing is legally binding. Just like that of a written will. And being his favorite, as we talked about two weeks ago... Isaac wanted to give Esau the blessing of the firstborn. Now let me stop here. There are a lot of things we do not know. The author of Genesis does not reveal it to us. We're not told if Rebekah told her husband Isaac about God's prophecy to her. We're not told if Esau has told his father about his foolish decision to sell his birthright to Jacob. If both of them knew this information and went on as planned, they are dishonest in pursuing this. But we're not told those things. We're only told that Isaac is old and he is basically blind. He knows his time on earth is coming to an end and he's going to make a very important decision. Now some of you would read this and you would say, ah, the Bible is advocating that old people are not to make decisions especially when their senses are not fully functional. That is not what the Bible is teaching. Yes, we understand that in the physiological bodies of the process called aging, older people often have memory lapses and create memories, and they may not be as sharp, but that is not what the Bible is teaching, that older people cannot make decisions. Although, apart from a biblical principle that is important, that we all check, our hearts to ensure that we are capable of making decisions in spite of health challenges or the fact that we are not clouded by bias, such as favoritism or have set agendas, but that's a different sermon for a different time. But here we look at some of our principles we want to draw out about deception. Look at verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I have heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make me savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I have commanded you. Now go to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. Unknown to Isaac and Esau, Rebekah overhears this conversation and quickly calls her favorite, Jacob, instructs him to go get two goats from the flocks and she would make her husband's favorite meal. And then she asks Jacob to pretend to be Esau so that he would get the blessings of the firstborn. Now again, let me stop here and say there are a lot of things we do not know. We don't know the true motivation of why Rebecca does what she is doing. Perhaps knowing that Esau has already sold his birthright to Jacob, she is incensed that Esau does not tell his father the truth. 
that it is Jacob that should legally get the blessings of the firstborn. We don't know if that's her motivation. She wants to right the wrong. Or perhaps she is motivated by the fact that she remembers the prophecy and like Jacob from two weeks ago, wanted to use human intervention to quote-unquote help God. The Bible doesn't tell us these details of her motivation, but what is very clear is here there is a plan for deception. And somehow this plan of deception is justified in the mind of Rebekah and Jacob. The use of deception to do what's right, they believe. Again, the theme where the ends do not justify the means, but they believe it does. You know, there are a lot of things that Rebecca could have done. She could have come to Isaac and told him, I overheard what you said to Esau. Can I remind you about the prophecy? Can I tell you about it? In case you've forgotten. Or she could have come up to Jacob and and, and tell her favorite, Jacob, I overheard this conversation between your brother and your father. Maybe your father doesn't know. Why don't you go to your father Isaac and tell him that Esau legally sold his birthright to you. Now, if they were to have done these things, and it would have been perhaps the right thing to do, and Isaac still wishes to bless Esau with the rights of the firstborn, then that's Isaac's problem. And Isaac would have to answer to God for what he did. But somehow, we don't understand why Rebekah and Jacob do not talk to their father. Perhaps they thought that talking to Isaac would be of no use because of his deep favoritism and obvious favoritism for Esau, which then clouded his judgment. Whatever the case they resorted to deception. The correct things were not done. Deception was used as a contingency plan, justified perhaps in their mind, to get God's purpose. And that's unfortunate. But let us not condemn them too bad. Let's not condemn them too much, because we often resort to the same thing. Instead of trusting in God and doing what is right, we, as human beings, resort to deception and deceit to get our ways. And here we can extrapolate the first principle, number one. Using deception to get your way shows a lack of trusting in God. Using deception and intrigue to get your way shows a lack of trust in God. All four of them if we really knew their motivation, use deception to get their own ways, showing that they lacked a deep faith in God to do His will. Now look at verses 11 and 12. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Jacob immediately realized that this deception may be harder than it seems because Esau is hairy and Jacob was smooth-skinned. And what if the father decides in his blindness to feel which son it was? And if Isaac were to find out, he may curse Jacob instead of bless him. You know, Let me stop here. It's interesting 
that Jacob's concern wasn't on the fact that he was going to do something wrong. His concern was the fact that he would get caught. It's sad when people engage in deception and deceit that what they're most afraid of is that they are afraid of getting caught, not worry that what they're doing is wrong. From this, we can extrapolate our second biblical principle, number two. Practicing deception diminishes our spiritual concerns and sensitivities. Practicing deception clouds, diminishes our spiritual concerns and sensitivities. We see it often when people engage in sin. They have no problems engaging in more sin to cover up. Right? We always hear that once you lie, you will begin to lie to protect that lie. When a husband is accused by his wife of having a mistress, most husbands' reaction are not, ah, I was caught, I'm sorry. The initial response is usually, no, why would you say that? I was eating with my buddies till four in the morning, right? We all revert back to lies and unjustifiable actions and unethical means just to deny that we did something wrong. That's why often those who are involved in covering up something, they are only concerned, not in the wrong they did, they are concerned that the news will get out, the news will leak. And so they are so preoccupied with who knows and what has been told, often defaming the one who knows the truth. Isn't that true? Practicing deception clouds, reduces our spiritual sensitivities. When we sin, we end up sinning more to cover up that first sin. We see this principle also played out in the next exchange. Look at verse 13 to 17. But his mother said to him, Jacob, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, get me, get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of his elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hand and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Jacob, Rebecca says, don't you worry about your concerns. I will take the blame. Just go do as I said. Can you imagine that? A mother telling her son, what you're doing is wrong, but don't you worry about it. Her spiritual sensibilities, her moral guidance has been compromised. With each action, they threw away the notion of what was right and wrong. They didn't just prepare the food. Look what the Bible says. They even stole the clothes of Esau for their elaborate plan. And if you were to ask them, why did you steal Esau's clothes? They would say, oh no, we weren't stealing, we were borrowing. 
their moral fibers were being torn and shredded. And look, there was more of this spiritual insensitivity that comes with deception. Look at verse 18 to 20. So Jacob went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And Jacob said, note this, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. We should be horrified that a son would lie to his father. Isaac asked, how'd you find this game meat so fast? And we should be shocked that Jacob would use the name of the Lord to defend his position of deception. He lies and said, no, the Lord provided the animal. And you say, shame on Jacob using the Lord's name to defend his position of deception. Let me ask you this. How many of us, in defending our position, may often use the word, as God is my witness, the words I say are true, or I swear on the Bible. Imagine if everyone really swore on the Bible to tell the truth and use God as his witness or her witness, You'd never have any disagreements because everyone would tell the truth. But everyone has no problems, sadly, to defend their position with spiritual justification. My goodness, if God really is your witness, would you not be a little bit scared? But no, that's the problem. When we engage in sin and when we engage in deception and deceit, our spiritual sensitivities are weakened. We are desensitized. We will use God's name, and everyone's claiming God's name. We will use spiritual truth. We will use Bible verses out of context to defend one's action, even though it is blatantly wrong, just to assure oneself that they do so for a higher spiritual purpose. Perhaps Jacob is thinking, well, dad favors Esau. I'm owed this birthright. I will help God and fulfill his purpose and prophecy. And I have no problems with lying, stealing, deceiving my own father and using the Lord's name. And that's what the Bible throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, tells us as his followers to live forth a holy life. A life above reproach. It's not because the Bible has nothing else to say. Because God knows that if we engage in sin, it will pervert our thinking. It will minimize our moral character. It will desensitize us from that which is right. But if we live a holy life in conjunction with what the Word of God teaches, then we're always aware of what is right and wrong. Men and women who engage in deception, their sense of right and wrong, sadly, is compromised. 
Look at our third principle in verses 21 to 29. Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau? Jacob said, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near him and he ate and brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and he blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Isaac is blind. He has doubts whether he would give the blessing to Jacob because his voice doesn't sound the same. He is doubting in his mind how he was able to prepare the food so quickly. But simply because he felt the hairy skin of an animal and he smelled the quote-unquote outdoors of the clothes, he gave the blessing to Jacob anyway in spite of his doubts. You know, I've always wondered this. I've known this story since I was a child. For whatever reason, a favorite of many Sunday school kids. I've always wondered if Isaac had doubts whether this was Jacob or Esau, why didn't he just call someone? Did you ever think about that? Hundreds of servants call one in. Is the man with me Jacob or Esau? He could have called Rebecca to come in and confirm which son this is. I mean, there was a lot of things he could have done in his doubt before he prayed such a monumental prayer, this, this big thing of giving the blessing of the firstborn son, right? Would you sign a multi-billion peso contract if you had any doubts about any wording in it? I don't think so. You would call lawyers to come in to take a look at the document you are signing. That leads me to believe something. That leads me to believe that Isaac perhaps knew about the prophecy. That he knew that Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob. But knowing these things, he still wanted to do something wrong because he so favored Esau. Does that make sense? That he would not call anyone else in into this private ceremony, which should have been a very public one. You know, it's interesting as you read through the scriptures. Whenever a dying man wants to bless his children, he calls them all there. We see this when Jacob does it. He calls all of his 12 children in, blesses each one. We see this with Joseph calling his son Ephraim and Manasseh in. We see this with Moses and Joshua, when at the end of their life, they want to leave instructions, they make sure representatives from the 12 nations of Israel are there. We see this with Jesus. When he's going to leave instruction, he calls his 12, or he'll call his inner three, so that all will hear. And as we talked about last week, it would be prudent 
if you are going to speak about inheritance to make sure that all of your children are there. Why would Isaac, in a time of doubt, not call for someone to verify which son it was? Perhaps, most likely, he was trying to railroad and do something wrong. There's a great principle that we can extrapolate. Again, it is not that you shouldn't make decisions when you're blind or you're older. Here's the principle. When in doubt, don't do it. It may not be the Lord's will. When in doubt, don't do it. It may not be the Lord's will. Because if you continue to do something in doubt without verification and assurance, then perhaps either what you're doing is wrong and you know it, or it is not of the Lord's will. So easy to have sought for verification. And because he did not, it would cause great issue. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 and other verses speak about the unity of the Spirit. And in this grander idea, it is the principle that if God's will is in this matter, then there should be little doubt and there should be much unity. God is a God of order. His will is clear. And although we may be uncertain as to the details, doubt shows that perhaps this is not God's will. It doesn't mean you'll have the answers to everything. It just means it is a cautionary sign. That's why it's important for everyone, whether in the family or if you're a businessman, or if you're a leader, just anyone, to surround yourself with friends, with a group of advisors, with family members who are willing to speak the truth in love, to tell you what you are doing is wrong in love, to help you discern the will of God. When you surround yourself with people who only tell you yes and affirm what you're doing, we call them yes men, yes women, the book of Proverbs talks about those type of friendships and relationships. It will lead to your destruction. If you have men and women who you surround yourself with, who will give you honest answers, and you know they will speak the truth in love, if there is a consensus, there is unity, then you can know it is the will of God. But when in doubt, don't do it. It may not be the Lord's will. For those of you who are married... Your spouse serves in this role. Cindy is one of the few people who has the courage to tell me, that's a stupid idea. Don't do it. It's a dumb idea. And although at that time when she said it, I wasn't too happy, or usually am not happy, I'm glad she says it. It gives me pause. Because of her saying it, it has saved me from some very dumb decisions and some stupid actions. Remember Pilate, Pontius Pilate? He was ready to convict Jesus to death. And in Matthew 27, verse 19, Pilate's wife sends him a note telling Pilate, don't do it. He's a righteous man. Pilate does not listen to his wife. I've just given ammunition to all the wives in Matthew 27, 19 to tell their husband, you should listen to me. But the point is this. 
when given a contrasting thought, Pilate should have listened, at least paused, investigated more, but he didn't. For 2,000 years, Pontius Pilate is known as the one who killed Jesus. Well, Isaac doubts, but does it anyway. And he blesses Jacob. Look at verse 28 to 29. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and the plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Here it is. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. There it is. The deception has worked. Jacob got the blessing of the firstborn, which is now binding upon Isaac. If only the story ended here. But it doesn't. Now, the fallout, the ramification. Look at verse 30. Now, what happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So he said, I am your son, your, your firstborn, Esau. Look at verse 33. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came and I blessed him and indeed he shall be blessed. The reaction of Isaac in verse 33 is the trembling of a man who realizes that he has just made a horrible mistake. But he realizes that his words are binding on the one whom he gave his blessings to. Look at Esau's reaction in verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. This is the cry of one who knew he has lost forever something of great value. He knew the ramification of what this meant, and he begged his father, Can I have a blessing as well? Verse 35, But Isaac said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, then now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Let me stop here. I find it very interesting that Isaac says that Jacob has taken away with deceit Esau's blessing. A bit ironic and hypocritical. Especially if Isaac knew that Esau had sold his birthright. Why so secret, Isaac? Were you trying to honor your favorite son? You also practice in deceit. He is not innocent, I believe. Esau is also livid. He said, there it is, Jacob lives up to his name. 
the one who grabs what is not his, the usurper, he has taken away, note this, my birthright and now my blessing. And I want to tell Esau, excuse me, Esau, birthright and blessing go together. If you sold the one to your brother, you don't get the other one. Why does Esau think that somehow he can sell his birthright and his blessing is still owed him? I think that Esau thought that daddy would come to the rescue. That daddy would come to the rescue at the end because he was the favorite and would negate this stupid decision of his life. He's deceiving himself. He exposes himself. He took away my birthright, and now look, he took away my blessing. No, you gave your birthright. Your deception is now revealed. The truth will come out, and it did for Isaac and Esau. In the same way, the truth came out for Jacob and Rebekah, I often wondered, while they were planning this scheme, did they not think that Esau would find out? Did they not think that Isaac would find out? We'll talk about this next week. You'll see, they didn't have much of a contingency plan. I think when people work on plans of deception, they don't really think through the full consequences of their actions. They are so engrossed with their plans. You see, for Jacob and Rebekah, the truth also came out their deception immediately was exposed, and that's our fourth truth, number four. The truth will always come out. Deception will always be exposed. The truth will always come out. Deception will always be exposed. That is a biblical principle. The very words of Jesus found in Luke chapter 8, verse 17, speaks about this. The truth will come out, Jesus' own words. So remember that the next time you are planning to use intrigue and deception between your friends or amongst your family. The truth has a very odd way, you may think, of coming out. But it is very natural that the truth comes out because God is a God of truth and holiness. You know, the very nature or the definition of deception is that you will never find out. Isn't that correct? I will deceive you. You will never find out. That's one of Satan's lies. Just practice this deception. No one will ever find out. This story should serve as a reminder. Here we are, thousands of years later, when this event happens, and now we all know about the dirty secret of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. They didn't want all of this to be exposed but everyone in history now knows about it. My friends, the truth will come out. Deception will always be exposed. That's why the Bible tells us that we are to live above reproach, especially for leaders. We are to be above reproach so that no one can be embarrassed if they are living a secret life. Satan loves nothing more than to embarrass the church of God through its leaders. 
to the people who go to it. And you think it will not come out. It will come out because God cannot have anything to do with sin. And once it comes out, we will all be exposed and embarrassed. So if you live a life in holiness, then you have nothing to be afraid of. No one has anything on you. Look at verse 37. Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants with grain and wine. I I have sustained him. What shall I now do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Esau does receive a blessing and he is blessed historically. But it is not the blessing that he wanted. It is not the blessing that Jacob received. He would not be as great as his brother. What is the result of all this? Look at verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. The result of this deception is that Esau hated Jacob with a passion feeling he was cheated out of everything in life. And this would cause a division in their family for decades. We'll continue to look at that and how it develops. Such hatred in the heart of Esau that he said, when dad dies, when Isaac dies, the moment he dies, I will kill Jacob. The fifth principle, number five. The consequences of deception is devastating. It is simply not worth it. The consequences of deception is devastating. It is never worth it. What a mess. Family dysfunction in prime example. This is not God's will. God's sovereign plan to have the younger rule over the older, the older to serve the younger, would have come to pass without all of this deception. But when men and women do not trust God, and they manipulate and they deceive, then while God's will will still be accomplished in spite of our sin, The consequences are always devastating. It is the consequences that the Bible teaches us how to avoid. When you begin to think about wanting to deceive someone else or use deception to get your way, would you repeat this phrase in your mind? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. If you, I believe, were to interview 
people in jail today and ask them if their deceptive, sinful act was worth it, I think you will hear a chorus of men and women who tell you it's not worth it. In the heat of the anger, I did this. It wasn't worth it. In the heat of passion, I did this. It wasn't worth it. It's never worth it. Even the temporary joys that deception brings, it's never worth it at the end. To have your brother so hate you that he wants to kill you and we know he can, it's not a good thing. I often wonder why God puts stories like this about men and women of faith. I think it's to show us that they too struggle with the same things we do. And we are to learn the lessons of what not to do from how they fell into the pitfall. So remember, the next time you want to use intrigue and deception to get your way, remember it shows that you have a lack of faith and trust in God. Remember that if you are to engage in deceptive acts and in deception, it will diminish, it will cloud your spiritual concerns and sensitivities, your moral fibers, your sense of right and wrong will begin to be clouded. When you are ever in doubt, don't do it. Seek counsel. Wait. It may not be of the Lord's will. A reminder that if you are thinking about deceiving others, the truth will always come out. It may not be found out for a while, but God is the God of truth. His own word says that it will come out. Deception will always be exposed. Maybe not in this lifetime, but certainly in the next. And remember, the consequences of deception is devastating. It's not worth it. Don't go down this path. It is not worth it. We have been warned. We have been challenged. Let us live it out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a reminder even to me. When we seek to do things in our human ways, seemingly thinking we can help you, we do much worse. Help each man and each woman here this morning and in our church to live lives of holiness and integrity, to be men and women of character, to love it, to value it, never compromising our convictions rooted in the scriptures. Because when we begin to engage in deception and intrigue and manipulate, then you are not only not honored, but there is devastating consequences for us. Help us to build together a church family and a home family that is bursting with joy, that's full of peace by avoiding just this.
Convict our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.